Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, A Desert Experience, with a message entitled, No Other Gods. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading Exodus 21 to 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this has been a series on the book of Exodus, chapters 15 through 20. It follows the footsteps of ancient Israel from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. The series began with the aftermath of the drowning of the Egyptian chariots and horsemen, and now it comes to an end with the giving of the Ten Commandments. Today we're at the base of Mount Sinai. God is speaking to the entire nation. He will give them the basis for all of their laws and the fundamentals of what the righteous life looks like. If Israel is to be a holy nation, these commands define what a holy people look like. You know, I've preached on the Ten Commandments on numerous occasions in my life, and I have found that in some cases, simply doing so raises controversy. People often ask, I mean, what's the relationship of my faith to the law? You see, on the one hand, there are those who think that the Ten Commandments are passe. I mean, they often love to quote Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, the Ten Commandments are a part of the law of God that eventually proclaim us as guilty and pronounces that we are indeed under the curse of a lawbreaker. But Christ has redeemed us, and that means, at least in some ways of thinking, that people think they're no longer bound to the law. They're freed from the Ten Commandments, but that's untrue. Now, I might add that some think that this means that the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, has been relegated to the past. I'd like to say something to this. In our day, a great many Christians are woefully ignorant of the Ten Commandments. In a survey done in Great Britain some years ago, British clergymen were asked if they knew the Ten Commandments by heart, and the vast majority couldn't repeat them from memory. And that's interesting because only a generation ago, it was considered part of basic Christian training for all Christian children to know them. Now pastors don't know them. And one pastor even said he pays no attention to them at all because, in his words, they're so negative. You know, I did a test some years ago of graduating fourth-year Bible college students. I won't name the college in order to protect the guilty. But I gave the graduating students a piece of paper and I asked them to write down the Ten Commandments. And I strongly suspected that most of them wouldn't be able to give all ten, but I was completely unprepared for their response. A number of them thought an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was one of the ten. One even put them as two different commands. You know, an eye for an eye, that's one of them, and a tooth for a tooth, that's another. Another thought the golden rule was one of the ten. 
Quite a few others thought that Jesus' statement to love God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourself must be two of them. And I suddenly realized it wasn't just that they didn't know the Ten Commandments. They didn't even know what the Ten Commandments were at all. Bible college students, some would end up in the pulpits of our land and they wouldn't know them. Now, the Ten Commandments form the basis of what it means to be righteous. And no, the Ten Commandments are not the way to be saved. But they are God's standards for living in the Christian way. Well, for ancient Israel, every law that Israel would receive after the giving of these ten would be based on the ten. So, for instance, there is a law that forbids the wearing of clothing made of two different kinds of fabric, and it wasn't intended as a universal law. But it was based on the Ten Commandments in Israel. Wearing clothing with only one fabric was supposed to be an external reminder for the nation never to mix their God with the gods of the nations. Well, I could go on and on, but let's begin. Now, you're going to notice that the Ten Commandments begin with a preface. It identifies the lawgiver, that is, I am the Lord or I am Yahweh, the God who brought you out of Egypt. And with that come the first two laws, the laws we're going to look at today. They are the commands never to forsake fidelity to the one true God. So here's command number one. You shall have no other gods before me. So let's begin. What does it mean? What is meant by the words before me? It's a Hebrew expression, and it means you shall have no other gods in my presence. Now, of course, everything depends on what we think is meant by God's presence. Does it mean you should have no other God when you appear before him in worship, as in make sure you don't bring an idol into the tabernacle of the Lord when you come to worship? That is, don't even have a small idol in your jacket pocket. I suppose everything depends on what it means when the God of Israel speaks about being in his presence. The other issue is found in the statement, other gods. Are there other gods? Is Baal a real god? What about Chemosh of the Moabites and so forth? Is the first commandment just a call to exclusive allegiance or is there more to the command? And so it seems clear that in order to understand this command, we need to understand what it means to be in God's presence and what the God of Israel actually thinks about the many deities that surrounded the nation of Israel. So let's begin with what God says first about himself, and then second, about all the gods and goddesses of the nations that surround Israel. I think the best place to begin is with the creation account. The very first words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and several things should interest us about that verse. The Hebrew word for create is the word bara. In the Old Testament, it's only ever used in relationship to God. God is the creator. No one else created. Whatever else exists was brought into being by God. It's not the moon was brought into existence by another deity and the rivers by another one, the mountains by still someone else. It's not that Baal is the god of the storm. No, no. The storm is the creation of God. Everything that exists, therefore, is his. He owns everything because he created everything. Now, that's the beginning of the Bible. God has no rivals, for he is the creator of all. The next scripture that needs to be considered are the first 15 chapters of Exodus. And here, I'm thinking most specifically of the plagues on Egypt. In the Egyptian way of thinking, the Nile was controlled by the god Happy, 
whom the Egyptians thought to be the Nile God. And so when Moses' God turned the Nile into blood, Happy couldn't defend his own Nile against the God of the Hebrews. The second plague is the plague of frogs. Frogs came out of the Nile and filled the land of Egypt. Again, the Egyptians had a goddess by the name of Hecate. She was a goddess of fertility. And wherever we see her depicted, we see her with the head of a frog. Again, this now is Israel's God directing the frogs, not at the behest of Hecate. See, she's powerless. God is powerful, so forth. And with that comes a remarkable statement when you think about it. Exodus 8 verse 19 said, The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. I say it's remarkable because they don't name one of the gods. They don't say, you know, this is Ra, the sun god, or Horus, or identify one of their other deities. They don't say, oh, this is the work of the Hebrew god, as if to simply add one more god to the long list of gods and goddesses they already know. Instead, they say, this is the finger of God. And this is completely in line with what is typical of polytheistic religions. Even while they hold to a belief in many gods and goddesses that rule portions of nature, it's in complete line with their belief system that there is one supreme creator who is greater than all. And so it seems to me as I read the Exodus account, that's exactly what the magicians are saying. This is the great God. And so it should be easy to see how it came to be that many of the Israelites, even after they had been introduced to the God of Sinai, still felt that there were a number of other gods that also needed to be appeased. I mean, after all, they came from Egypt, and in Egyptian theology, the great creator doesn't show up that often. You see, and this would have been a part of the theology that Israel unwittingly adopted. So again, we're left with a puzzle. How are we to understand the words, you shall have no other gods in my presence? The Ten Commandments are a centerpiece of God's law. The rest of the laws are a further expansion of the ten. So we should find in the law an expansion of the first command, and that's exactly what we find. Exodus 22 verse 20 says, Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Or Exodus 23 verse 13, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. That is, don't speak of them at all. God never promised that this life would be easy, but he did promise that he would be there with us, guiding our footsteps along the way. God is present. He is active in all the seasons of life. But the truths of God's faithfulness can become muted by the noise of our present circumstances. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, A Story of Lives Redeemed. It walks us through the book of Ruth and the seed of hope that one family's redemption story offers to us all. If you're in need of encouragement in your own story, this booklet is for you. To request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Having no other gods before him clearly means that before him there must not be any mention of the gods of the nations. 
The one true God allows no other gods among his people at any time. It's not acceptable that we say we believe that the Lord is supreme, but we also allow for lesser deities. No other deities are allowed at any time. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The God of Israel is the one true God. All other gods are utterly renounced. That means that the Old Testament makes it very clear that the gods of the nations are no gods at all. Now to the second law, which as we're going to see is very similar to the first. The second law forbids making an image of anything that is said to represent God, whether the image is the likeness of a human being or that image is in the likeness of an animal, or anything else found in the created order, any image representing God is forbidden and considered evil. Indeed, so seriously does God take this that he visits the iniquity of this sin on the third and fourth generation. And the text also says that those who practice the making of a representation of God are those who hate God. It's hard to overemphasize this. God makes so much of it. Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher of the 17th century, said, In the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden, and this, however, the second commandment, worshiping the true God in a false manner is forbidden. In other words, anything we make, a representation of God, a carved image, a likeness, a picture, a statue, or any other representation of God, any time we do that, we break this command. The second commandment forbids us from representing God in a physical fashion. But why is that so important? J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, we must be clear here. Today's idea is that the great divide is between those who say, I believe in God in some sense, and those who cannot say it in any sense. Atheism is seen as an enemy. Paganism is not. And it's assumed that the difference between one faith and another is quite secondary. But in the Bible, the great divide is between those who believe in the Christian God and those who serve idols, gods, that is, whose images, whether metal or mental, do not square with the self-disclosure of the Creator. Wow, so much to think about. But you'll have noticed that Packer talks about those who have some kind of a mental depiction or an image of God. Packer says that too is idolatry. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's concentrate on physical images made of wood, stone, or any other thing. Why is this wrong? Why does God make a law forbidding it? And by the way, some of us might be surprised by this. Many of us have never understood the difference between the first and second command. So let's understand the difference. The nations around Israel all had idols or physical depictions of their gods and goddesses. But the prohibition against worshiping those gods and their depictions is covered in the first command, you shall have no other gods. But the second command is a command against creating a depiction or a representation of the God of Israel. And that was what Packer was saying. Packer believed that the great problem the scripture is addressing in the second command is the problem of those who create a picture or a likeness of God. In the end of his life, Moses explained this command to the next generation. Here I'm reading Deuteronomy 4, verses 11 to 18. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant 
And he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, which you wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. That's the second command. Look, God has no form. In other words, if you were to see God, there's nothing to see. And when the Bible tells us that we're going to see God, that's a mystery. And that's what Jesus said in John 4, 24. God is spirit. God is spirit means he's non-corporal. He has no body. How about someone who knows the Bible will say, well, wait a minute. What about the prophet Isaiah? Didn't he say, I saw the Lord? Well, yeah. In fact, Isaiah says that in Isaiah 6, but later on in John 12, 41, John the Apostle interprets that statement for us. He tells us that what Isaiah actually saw was Jesus. See, that's the mystery. The God who has no body, the God who has no form, the God who has no flesh would, through the second person of the Trinity, take upon himself flesh. If it were not that the Son had took upon himself flesh, we would have no image at all. But the Son now is the image of the invisible God. Notice, God is invisible. So, to be clear, it's not wrong to make a depiction of Jesus because he took upon himself the form of a man. But to make an image of the invisible God is to distort, to defame, or to manufacture God in our image. Now, someone who's discerning might say here, well, What about Michelangelo's depiction of God on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican? Well, the answer to that is, in my estimation, quite easy. It's a sin. Now, I know that's going to shock some of my listeners. They'll say, it's great art, but listen to me. If I owned the Vatican, and I don't, but if I did, I'd paint right over it. God does not look like an old man. Make no depiction of God whatsoever. The command is completely clear. And this is the key. Also, make no depiction of God in your mind. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You must make no image. Indeed, as Packer has said, no metal or mental images of God. None are acceptable. Banish them from your mind. It is according to Moses in Deuteronomy 4 verse 16, acting corruptly. It's immoral. It's sinful. Now, I might be tempted to add other of God's attributes here, such as his omnipresence, that is, he's present to all spaces at all times, but I fear I'm going to get too far afield. At the very least, may I remind you of the Apostle Paul's words in Acts 17, verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. That is to say, God is not in human form, and he's not contained by human spatial limitations. But I commend to you a thorough and biblical study of all the attributes of God. God is not in physical form, and you have never been out of his presence. You know, he is everywhere present. As Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 
You see, God has no form, says Moses, and therefore you shall not make a depiction of the one true God. At the very outset, it should be clear that when we make a depiction of God, we're not depicting God at all. The real problem with idolatry is that we don't want the real God, but rather we want a God whom we make in our image. And once we make God in our image, we have a God who's controlled by human will and human manipulation. That's not God. See, our great temptation is the one not only that ancient Israel struggled with, but we do as well. Our temptation is that we want to create God, and then, after having done that, we worship what our own hands have made. Idolatry is worship of self. The real problem with idolatry is that we've elevated self onto the throne. Look again at Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, why does God say he's jealous for the sake of the greatness of his name? How can God be jealous for his own glory? Well, the answer has something to do with the word glory itself. The word glory has something to do with the worth of something. It was the Middle Ages theologian Anselm who said, God maintains nothing with more justice than the honor of his dignity. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards, great preacher and evangelist, said, God regards himself infinitely above his regard for all other things. I studied under Daniel Fuller, my mentor, who said, all God's energy and the intensity of his feeling is fully directed towards delighting in the worth of himself. Why? Because God knows objectively that he is worth far more than anything else. Failure to worship God as he is, is the fountain of all other sins. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, you know, what does it mean in this passage that God is a jealous God, often not considered an attractive trait for most? Yeah, it's not attractive when we're jealous because, to be truthful, when we're jealous, we're trying to protect something that doesn't deserve ultimate honoring. Um, So, you know, God, however, when he's jealous for his glory, is jealous for that which is ultimately worthy. And so if God were not jealous for his glory, God would in effect be saying to us, well, my glory isn't worth everything. But as a matter of fact, his glory is worth everything. And therefore, it's righteous for God to be jealous and unrighteous for us to be so. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada, we're so humbled to see how God is using this ministry to speak the truths of his word into lives across the nation and beyond. It's our mandate to faithfully present the scriptures exactly as they are to everyone without barrier. And it is so encouraging to see how many listeners stand with us in this commitment. We hear from listeners every week of the impact that Back to the Bible Canada is having on their spiritual journey. Sam wrote, I have learned so much over the past few years from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thanks, Sam. Now, to support this Bible teaching ministry, or to learn about the free Bible resource this month being offered, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.